So we're in Deuteronomy. If you'd like to open up your Bibles, the book of Deuteronomy, if you opened up on Sunday for the first time launching into this amazing, wonderful book. And in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1, We're told these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Sup, between Paran and Tophel, Laban and Hatzerot and Dizahab. These are the words, Elah HaDevarim. As we talked about on Sunday, the Jewish title of the book is HaDevarim. And what we came to at the end of our study, at the end of the teaching on Sunday, was that Hadevarim, Deuteronomy, is at heart a book of love. Which perhaps surprised some of you, if, if you studied through that, you might not have thought of Deuteronomy as a, a book of love, a book that truly does have heart. But you hear so much heart in this book. Part of it is you hear the heart of Moses talking to the people because this is the preached law. This is Moses pouring out his heart in sharing the law once again to the people, making application of the law and articulating the word of God, spoke by God, but now taught by Moses. If you miss Sunday, it's important that you know there's a four-part outline I, I gave on Sunday. I'll give it to you again right now for the book of Deuteronomy. Part one is a retrospective of the journey. First four chapters. Moses goes into a, a retrospective. We will all but finish that tonight. We'll go through most of the rest of it. Moses looking back and applying and talking about what happened and bringing them to where they are. And by the way, I just gotta say, Moses is 120 years old when he starts this sermon. Without notes, he is as sharp as a tack. <laughs> Which is funny to me because back when we started the bridge, my my kind of deal that I made with the Father, some of you know this, is, Lord, I'm going to teach through the Bible, and I'm going to do it with notes so that I don't miss any Hebrew words or any Greek words. But once I've taught all the way through it, when we get around the horn and come back to Genesis again, then I'm just going to shut off the notes, open up the Bible, and, and teach because I will have taught through the whole thing, right? Well, now I'm in my mid-50s, and I don't remember anything. I have to have notes. <laughs> Moses, 120 years old, is absolutely sharp. The recall that you will see in 33 chapters, this is him teaching the people. But it's not just his recall, is it? This is Moses speaking by the spirit of the living God. And that is his recall. So we have a retrospective of the journey. That's part one of Deuteronomy, first four chapters. Part two, chapter five through 26, Moses gets into the relevance of the law. Again, applying the law, not just restating it, but he gives the law, and then he makes application along the way, which is marvelous. So that's the relevance of the law, part two, chapters five through 26. Part three, chapter 27 through 30, is a revelation of Israel's future. It's all prophecy, amazing prophecy. Blessings and curses and many of these things we've, we've seen happen across history since Moses spoke those up until now. Finally, part four, I called a requiem of Moses because this is all his final words, his last song, his farewell blessing, and then Moses will die. And that's Deuteronomy. We're well on our way into the retrospective. In fact, we're gonna pick up right where we left off, verse 14 of chapter two, 
And again, if you missed that introduction, go back and listen to it because we put together, gained understanding, I think, for where the book is going and what it truly is about and how, how significant, or I think I use the word pivotal, how pivotal a book this is in the scriptures. So some more tonight, picking up again, verse 14. Now, this is after the journey's end. Again, Moses and the people in the plains of Moab across the Jordan from the Jericho, from, from the city of Jericho, and he begins to preach. They are in the outskirts of the promised land. And in verse 14, he says, now the time it took us for us to come from Kadesh Barnea, that is when they were on the border of the promised land, ready to go in, sent the spies in and all that, until the generation, uh, or until we crossed over the brook Zered, was 38 years. 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them, that is first generation Israel, to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. God's own people. You need to remember before there was a single strike against another nation, the strike hit God's people that the entire generation of those who departed from Egypt were the first to be judged and found wanting and die in the wilderness long before there were any wars or battles or conquests against those already in the promised land among the Canaanites, God's own people. Now that was in part because God is going to send his people in to remove the deeply depraved Canaanite culture, but, but the judgment began with their own, and that is such a key. Remember that. Judgment began with Israel before it was meted out to the nations in Canaan's land. Proverbs 11.29 says, he who troubles his own house will inherit wind, <laughs> and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? And what he's saying, the implication there is that how much more will the wicked and the sinner receive a reward for their wickedness? A just reward, that is, a punishment. And he who troubles his own house does not discern his own sin. That's the issue, I think, often in our own lives. We, we bring trouble on ourselves because we judge others before we judge self, before we consider our own issues in our own house. And so Peter wisely said, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Then he quotes Proverbs 11, verse 31. He says, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is simply wise discernment. We pause here right at the beginning of tonight's study to note that judgment landed first in Israel. We need to see that. We need to recognize that in ourselves Judgment begins at home. Right judgment starts right here with my heart. Oh, not you judging my heart, me judging my heart. You judge your own hearts. You got enough to worry about. Have to worry about judging me. 
Judgment begins with the household of God. Peter rightly says this. In the church, we've got to remember that. First, let us discern our own sin and need for grace. And then, as we begin to bring the gospel, we come in an attitude of utter humility because we know what we were saved from. We know what we deserve. So we turn to this world, bringing the gospel from a place where judgment began. We judge self first because this word that we bring is itself, just speaking the word to family and friends, itself is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We're told in Hebrews 4.12, judgment begins at home. Now, if if judgment begins at home and then we go out with this word, just speaking this word that is able to judge the hearts of other people, you know what that means? That means when we leave home and simply bring this word, even when we bring it in utter humility, there will be conflict because this word judges. Not like we think judges, oh, this, the Bible's so judgmental. That's not what I'm saying. This word pierces right to the heart. The gospel cuts to the heart. The gospel reveals sin because the gospel is this pure, perfect, beautiful light that says you gotta come to Jesus or be lost and people don't wanna hear that. Sin doesn't wanna be told that it is sin. No one wants to be judged so there's gonna be conflict. So let judgment begin with the household of God that we with a right heart then can bring the word which will itself bring conflict. Now stay with me. The word brings conflict. We will bring conflict. So guess what we should expect? Conflict. Why are we surprised when we share the gospel with someone and they get upset with us? When we bring it up at a family gathering and we're shut down. When the moment you speak the name Jesus, people start rolling their eyes. Conflict. And conflict always begins close to home. Verse 16 It came about when all the men of war finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me, Moses saying, says, today you shall cross over Ar, the border of Moab. When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. Did you catch that on Sunday? Go back and and look at verse 4. Command the people saying, you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? So these are all the people of Jacob, but Jacob's brother Esau was given territory. We call it Edom. That belonged to the people of Esau, the Edomites. And so God says, that's their territory. I gave that to Esau, your brother, your relative. So when you pass through that, he says, take care. He says, "Uh, they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not provoke them. I will not give you any of their land, even as a footstep, or as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. This land is not your land. This land is Esau's land. So don't try to take it, he says. And then note in verse 9, the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the sons of Lot as a possession. Lot, Abraham's nephew. So again, these are relatives. The Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. 
These are all relatives of Israel. And God says, when you go through their land, don't touch it because it's theirs. I have given it to them. It belongs to them. So don't provoke or harass your extended family. Just move on through it. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites, which, by the way, is Jordan today, north to south, Ammon, Moab, Edom. It's the country of Jordan. And so these people, and, and by the way, I've mentioned this before, but the Jordanians don't consider themselves Jordanians. If you go to Jordan and talk to them, they're either Ammonites, Moabites, or Edomites. Depending on what part of the country they live in, that's what they trace their heritage to, which is fascinating. You go to the Middle East, it's old. Everything's old. You see signs First time I saw a sign, to the Sea of Galilee, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, or sign, Jericho is on a, a, a sign that you're, you're driving on a nice modern highway, Jericho. It's so weird. Everything's old. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites were, were cousins, were family, literally, to the Israelites. And so the Lord says, I want you to be careful going through these areas. Specifically with Edom, he says, be very careful. Why? Conflict is inevitable. How come? Because they're family. <laughs> family conflict is often the front line of all other conflicts that we face as followers of Jesus Christ. Because our family are the first people we want to tell this to. They're the first ones we want to share this great news. This is the gospel. I, it's changed my life. You got to hear about Jesus. I don't want to hear about Jesus, Dad. But, but I got to tell you about Jesus. I don't want to hear about Jesus, Mom. Bro, don't bring that to me. Conflict, it, it takes place in families, especially of followers of Jesus, because, man, father-in-laws against mother-in-laws, against brother, against sister. He says everybody's gonna be set apart, set against themselves. Jesus said, uh, in their own house, a man and his sons and a man and his daughters. God, note this, God prescribes, and we're gonna go through this tonight, several things that help us deal with, navigate family issues of discord and dysfunction. Who would have thought in Deuteronomy, we're gonna find out how do we deal with these people that we call family, the conflicts. And the number one thing to note, I'll give you eight or nine things tonight. Number one is compassion. In dealing with family conflict, you bring compassion. Note this again, Deuteronomy chapter two, verse four. Be very, they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not provoke them. Conflict often simply comes from fear. And he's telling his, his sons of Israel, he's saying, listen, the, the Edomites, the sons of Esau, they're, they're already afraid. You know what an animal does when they're afraid? They will bite you. Don't provoke. Understand, come with compassion because conflict is often born out of fear especially in a family situation, and fear causes people to fight. So understand when you come to a brother or a sister, come with compassion. Remember where you were before you received Jesus. Remember how you felt when someone mentioned Jesus to you, how you were off-put by the whole thing. Bring compassion, understanding. Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is for me. I, I will not fear. What, what can a man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. Which is kind of a lame translation because the words with satisfaction are not there. It literally says, so therefore, I will look on those who hate me. 
And what's implied is, I'll consider those who hate me. Uh, and you're thinking, yeah, but family doesn't hate me. No, but put it this way. I'll look upon those who are angry with me. I'll look upon those who are upset with me simply for sharing Jesus. I'll look upon them. What do you mean? I'll consider their position. I will come with compassion. I'll be sensitive to their fear. I will approach with faith in the one who is for me. I'll approach trusting in the Lord because he alone is the one I fear. I'm not afraid of how family might react to me, but I'm going to come with compassion and sensitivity to where they are. Secondly, contentment. Contentment. You navigate family conflict by coming with contentment. What do you mean? Verse five again. I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Before that, he says, I will not give you any of their land. That's their land. So you come with contentment. This land is their land. It is not your land. Don't try to take it or you won't make it. You can make up your own words. It's their land. So, so understand this. What God has for you is not what he has for me. So be content with what he has for you. And as you bring the gospel to family, to friends, be content that you have salvation, that you walk with Jesus. You don't have to defend that. You don't have to fight over it. You already have that. You have your land. You just want to offer them some. But you also, and and this is key, I tell people this from time to time, when you come with contentment, you're not trying to make them like you. Be a Christian like me. No, 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 you don't want to be a Christian like me. Trust me. You want to just follow Jesus. We've said this over and over. You just keep bringing it back to Jesus. It's not like being like me. I'm not trying to make you into a bridgeite. I'm not trying to say, join my denomination, accept all of our traditions and all of our baggage as well. No, forget that stuff. I'm content with where the Lord has me. I know the Lord loves you. So just go to Jesus. You offer this from a place of contentment. And by the way, Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. The godly person is gonna have far more impact with an unbeliever when they're content in their own born-againness. So compassion and contentment, and I'm like, yeah, I'd love to have more of both of those. Where, where can I get that? It comes from number three, the company we keep. The company we keep. Look at verse seven. He says, At the end of the, well, I'm going to read the whole verse. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings, which is translated either goings or trudgings. I like trudgings best. He's known your trudgings through the great wilderness. Listen, these 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. The whole point, I believe, of this retrospective four chapters is a reminder of the presence and the provision of God. Moses starts here before launching into to revamp, retelling the law, recapitulating the law. Before he gets there, he starts by saying, now let's think about what's happened here. Think about where we've been. Think about what God did in all of those 40 years. He was with us. Was there ever a time God was not with us? No. Was there ever a time God did not provide for us? No. He has always been here. And even through sticky family conflicts. Because remember, remember what happened with Moab? 
Moab tried to curse Israel, but they couldn't. So they glommed on to the teaching of Balaam and they lured Israel into the compromising sexual immorality at Baal Peor. You remember those stories in the, in the wilderness teaching? That was family that messed with them like that. In any conflict, just recognizing the presence of the Spirit of God changes everything. When I'm in contention with a family member or a friend, and it's over the gospel, recognizing, wait a minute, I I walk by the Spirit. I am led by the Holy Spirit. That changes my perspective. And I realize, in family especially, there's no curse he can't dismiss. And in his company, compromise has no power over me. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And even if your name isn't, surely he'll do it. John 14, 26, he says, the helper, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. Note that. It's interesting to me that Jesus explains and expresses the coming of the Holy Spirit and the very next thing he says is peace I leave with you. When you're in a family conflict and you feel anything but peace, you need to remember who's present. You need to remember who is with you. That you walk with the spirit of the living God and as you walk with him, peace comes, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. Note that, so the context of his peace is his presence. He's with you. You don't need to fear. And even in conflict, his is the company I keep, his presence, his provision. And by the way, speaking of his provision, number four, Something else in conflict, cultivation. Cultivation. Look at verse six of Deuteronomy chapter two. We're looking back on some things that we kind of blew by on Sunday. He says, you shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat, and you shall also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. Huh. Why did God tell him that? Didn't he provide manna? Wasn't he providing water when they needed it? Why all of a sudden is God saying, by the way, when you go through Edom, you can buy from them food and drink. When you go through Moab, you can buy food and drink and and through Ammon. You you know, as you go through, don't provoke them. Don't fight with them. It's their land. Let them know you're not there to steal anything. You're going somewhere else. But you can buy food and drink from them. But but Lord, what about about the manna? And I want to suggest to you tonight that apparently... Manna was no longer enough. And I think, and I can't prove it, but I just think based on him saying, buy food and drink, that perhaps manna is diminishing. Now, Joshua chapter five, verse 12 says, the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, the promised land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. So there is a point where the manna completely stops. All the way up to that point, across the entire 40 years, and as they step into the land, manna is on the ground every morning until they can eat of the produce of the land, and then the manna stops. However, it seems that at some point here, as they're about to cross into the land, there's less manna. Why would God do something like that? 
Listen, God is a great Abba. He's a good, good father, as we sometimes sing. And a good father prepares his children for maturity. A good father provides for his children to a point, but then starts saying, okay, now it's your turn to provide for yourself. So I'll provide for, I'm still gonna, I still got your back, but, but you need to go out and get a job. You need to pay some of your part. And there's a transition period where there is, you know, where the, the child is, is taking care of themselves, learning to take care of themselves so that they, they can ultimately launch conflict Conflict cultivates maturity. Sometimes we don't think about it that way because we don't like conflict, but it, cultivate, it, it gives you the opportunity to develop compassion and to approach with contentment and to recognize the company you keep. It cultivates something in you spiritually as you go through these situations of conflict. And in this situation, the, the Israelites needed to begin providing for themselves because a good father always expects his children to grow up. So God here is encouraging responsibility for their own feeding while the man is still coming down, but I think it's coming down less and less. And, and here's the point. Here's the application for you and for me. Practically speaking, that's what the word of God does to us and through us. It calls us to take responsibility for our own feeding. Ephesians chapter four, verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted together and, and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We are called to mature in Christ, to grow. Hebrews chapter five, verse 12 the Hebrew pastor really gets after it. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. And he says this, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's an infant. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Part of the reason we dig so deep into the word, we go verse by verse and, and try and lay it out is because there's no other way to get to spiritual maturity than to dig into the food of the word, the meat of the word. And there's way too much pablum in churches today. Easy fare, light food, and it doesn't mature anybody. The word gets in and we grow in the word and develop in the word and I'm gonna come back to that one in a little bit but going through conflict with compassion, contentment in God's company recognizing the cultivation of maturity even as ideal in difficult situations guess what? The children of Israel at this point are being developed into conquerors. What about their enemies? Watch this. So skip on back down so they've gone through Edom, they've gone through Moab, they've gone through Ammon. And it says that, verse 20, it is also regarded, that is this land that is Jordan today, is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim. For Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumin. 
a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and settled their place. That is the Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites. They, they dispossessed these other people. Just as he did for the sons of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites from before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. And verse 23, the Avim, who live in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtarim, who came from Kaphtor, destroyed them and lived in their place. What's this all about? This really isn't even about the journey. Moses is going back to the people before the people whose land they're going through. And he's talking about them. Why? These four verses are an aside by Moses. So he's talking along, and all of a sudden he stops, and he gives a little information that actually is pretty revealing. He refers, first of all, to the Anakim, which I said on Sunday, the Skywalker family. Which it's not. It's these different people. Wait, you know, this is real. Star Wars is not real. No, the Anakim... These are a tall people, a very tall people, and they're the uh, offspring of Anak, and, and Anak's, Anak's name means long neck. So these are the long neckers, okay? You got the long neckers, and you got the Rephaim. Who are the Rephaim? We keep seeing this word Rephaim, and it literally translates, if you've heard me say giants, they were a large, tall, big people, but it actually translates fearsome ones. So you've got the long neckers, you've got the fearsome ones, the Rephaim were a tribal nation of large, warring people in that region east of the Jordan, what we would call Jordan today, and they populated Canaan, and, and they were a, a rough, tough people, but, but they got moved out. Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites fought them out, drove them out. Why? By the hand of the Lord, because it's what the Lord wanted. It's interesting also to realize God working with other nations other than Israel. We don't hear about that in the Old Testament. Yeah, because the Old Testament about God working with Israel. Israel's the focus. Doesn't mean he's ignoring the whole rest of the earth. He's still at work. The Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, he actually helped them, gave them strength in these battles to drive out the Anakim and the Rephaim. And it says here that the Ammonites also called these Rephaim the Zamzumim, which I think is a cool name for a band, which means, Zamzumim means plotters or schemers. So you put that together, these are long-necked, fearsome plotters. The Moabites called them Emim. Probably their most famous was Emimim. It's a rapper for the, sorry, <laughs> bad one. The Moabites called them Emim. Emim means terrors and Avim. Now the Avim are different. Note this down in verse 23. The Avim who lived in villages as far as Gaza. Okay, you know where the Gaza Strip is today? on the western coast of Israel, down south, quite a way south of, of Jerusalem, but right there on the coast, Gaza. It's overtaken right now by Hamas, Palestinians in that area. Well, the Avim, Avim means ruins. Ruins, which is interesting because pretty much anywhere Hamas goes, they ruin it. And they truly do that terror organization. But Avim, it means ruins. And the Avim... The Avim were there in Gaza, but even the Avim, the ruinous ones, were removed by the Kaphtarim, who came from Kaphtor. Sounds like a cough syrup, you know? Who are, these, who are the Kaphtarim from Kaphtor? Philistines. Kaphtarim is another name for the Philistines who came from Kaphtor, which is another name for, note this, you might know this in your Bibles, it's important even to today's geography and geopolitical situation, 
Kaftor is Crete. The Philistines came from the island of Crete. The Philistines were Europeans. They were not Arabs. Now, I tell you that. You Bible students already know this, that the, in, it was about the mid-60s was the very first time when Yasser, that's my baby, Arafat, when he stood up and said, we are the Palestinian people. Before that, do you realize if you lived in what they called Palestine, there were Jewish Palestinians and there were Arab Palestinians because the land was called Palestine because the Romans called it Palestine because they didn't have an H sound in Latin, so they called it Palestine, but it's Philistine country. And they named it that as a slap in the face to the Jews. The, the ancient Philistines that were such a pain in the neck of Israel were not Palestinians. The ancient Philistines were from Crete, Europeans. So it's very interesting. Now, so today when you hear about the Palestinians and they claim rights to the land going all the way back to the Philistines, no, they're, they're Arabic. They are not European. They are not Philistines. They're not Palestinians. Now, I do, this is one area where I have softened a bit over the years. Part of the challenge that is faced in the Middle East today is all of these people have been resting under the name Palestinian since the 60s. So if you're in a, in a region for 60 plus years, 70 years, and you've only ever been known as a Palestinian, you're a Palestinian. You know, my, my ancient relatives were not born in America, but I'm an American. This is where I was born and raised. That's all I know. So that's, my, that's my culture and my people, American. So it's the same for the Palestinians, and there needs to be grace and understanding for the Palestinian people who right now are under the thumb of terror organizations. So when we talk about the Arab or, or the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Palestinian and, and, and Israeli conflict, understand there are a lot of people that are victimized in this. The Palestinian Authority, however, is responsible, and Hamas and Hezbollah and all these terror organizations, and that's another teaching for another time. But I just want to point that out there in Deuteronomy, who would have thought, chapter 2, verse 23, we find out who the Philistines were and where they came from. The Kaftarim from Kaftor, Philistines from Crete. Now, the point of this little aside of Moses, back to our study, and in dealing with conflict, is these once great people, Rephaim, Zamzumim, you know, uh, Emim, and, and Avim, all these great ancient people, they're gone. You might note this, these once great, once great peoples were of colossal inconsequence. That's number five. I'm staying with the C's here, okay? So compassion, contentment, company, cultivation, and number five is colossal inconsequence. They're inconsequential. Moses mentions them to point out these awesome, fearsome, mighty, great, large people don't even exist anymore. They're not even in the land anymore. Why? Because in any conflict, size doesn't matter. God alone is consequential. God alone is of consequence. You're in a living room, you're talking with family, and you bring up Jesus and realize you have just stepped in the wrong direction for this family gathering, and everybody's piling on, and you're feeling like the only one in the room who has a, a modicum of truth in your heart, and you want to share that, but you're feeling, man, I'm, just, I'm outnumbered here. No, you're not. No, you're not. Size doesn't matter. Jesus matters, and he's the point. And so rather than Fighting back, which, which sometimes we can really get, you know, hyped up 
and want to turn right back around and fight and win the argument. What have I said about winning arguments? We're not here to win arguments. We're here to win hearts and souls. That's the point. So size doesn't matter. These people, God drove out these ancient nations before the nations that are there right now. And by the way, again, that reminds us God working in history with and for and against other nations than Israel. Daniel 2.21, it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings. He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men, knowledge to men of understanding. So the Lord told Moses, arise, set out, pass through the valley of Arnon. Look, I've given Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens who, when they hear the report of you, will tremble and be in anguish because of you. God says, I'll do that. I got you covered there. Moses, it's so funny. You and the Israelites, all you guys do, gotta do is just stay on the road and head toward the promised land and they will be shaken in their boots. I got you. God's gonna make that happen. Verse 26, Moses says, so... I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemot to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace. Huh? God said, go fight. Not Edom, not Moab, not Ammon, but, but Sihon and the Amorites? Take them out. Go fight them. And Moses sends words of peace. Well, he's discerning right. Watch this. Words of peace saying, let me pass through your land. I will travel only on the highway. I will not turn aside to the right or to the left. You will sell me food for money so that I may eat and give me water for money so that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. Where'd they get the money? <laughs> what? They brought it with them. They plundered Egypt. They had all kinds of money. They had money coming out their ears. I mean, where are you gonna buy food in the, in the wilderness anyway, right? All the money they have for 40 years, where are you gonna spend that? Some Arab boutique along the way? So they've got plenty, and we'll buy, we'll buy from you, he says. Just let us pass through on foot. Verse 29, just as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me, which is really kind of Moses, he skips over the Moabites trying to curse him, until I cross over the Jordan into the land which the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as he is today. Side note, Moses sent words of peace. Why? To reveal where Sihon's heart really was. He wasn't going to let him pass through. But Moses starts with peace. He starts with an offer. Just let us go through and we'll leave you be. And it reveals Sihon's heart. The Lord said to me, see, I've begun to deliver Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to occupy that you may possess his land. Note this in verse 31, the word occupy and the word possess, same word. Just different uh, renderings of the word, two different verbs in the sentence. Behold, to occupy, that's the word rash, that you may possess his land is the word reshet, and both words mean possess. So God's saying, begin to possess that you may possess. Start taking the land so that you can take the land. And then Sihon, with all his people, came out to meet us in battle at Yahaz. Verse 33, the Lord our God delivered him over to us and we defeated him with his sons and all his people. So we captured all his cities at that time, utterly destroyed the men, women, 
and children of every city. We left no survivor. We took only the animals as our booty, our treasure, and the spoil of the cities which we had captured. From Aroer, which is on the edge of the Valley of Arnon, and from the city which is in the valley, even to Gilead, there was no city that was too high for us. The Lord our God delivered all over to us. Only you did not go near to the land of the sons of Ammon, all along the river Yabok, and the cities of the hill country, wherever the Lord our God commanded us. Interesting. Again, Moses started out this process that ended up having them wipe out Sihon of the Amorites. He started the process with words of peace. In conflict, that's the right place to start. Number six in your list, if you're keeping track, is calm words. Bring calm words. Don't go into a fight to fight. Don't go into a conflict with conflict in your backpack. Go with calm words. You're bringing the gospel to a brother, a sister, a friend. Go with peace. Offer the best. Go in love and, and in, in calmness. See, Moses sought to first avoid conflict, to diffuse conflict rather than to dive into it. Now, in my flesh, I kind of like some conflict. I like a good argument. I'd love to just dive in and duke it out because I happen to have the word of truth here, baby, and it's like a sword I can cut you in pieces. That's the flesh. The spirit says, what is the end result? It's their salvation. So begin with peace. Bring calm words. Just because we have the right to fight, just because we know the Lord's with us, doesn't mean that we welcome or relish disputes. That's not the point. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. For they shall be called sons of God, Matthew 5, 8. And by the way, Paul includes the weirdest armament for warfare. Ephesians chapter 6 starts laying out these, you know, breast shield of righteousness, yeah. Helmet of salvation, right on. Sword of the Spirit, booyah. And he says, and shod your feet with the gospel of peace. I'm going to war here, Paul. Spiritual warfare, man. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We go to war for peace. It's the only kind of warfare I know of that you go into for peace. That that is the whole purpose of fighting that fight. We come in peace, not conflict. We don't sit in judgment with gavels. We walk in peace, the Bible says, with beautiful feet. Romans 10, 14. How will they then call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now, you begin with calm words, but if peace is rejected, guess what? Judgment. But judgment is in the hands of God. It's not in my hands. It's not my job. Just as Peter quoted in, in quoted Proverbs 11.31 in 1 Peter 4.18, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, where remember judgment begins with the household of Rick, judgment begins right there. If the righteous is saved with what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So here's Sihon, picture of the godless man and the sinner. Peace was offered. It's rejected. Where do you go? What do you do? And some might protest, and maybe you're one of them. 
This doesn't sound fair because the Lord hardened his spirit, verse 30, and made his heart obstinate. What chance did he have? God hardened the heart of King Sihon. Doesn't seem fair. Let me just underscore this. We've talked about it before. We did all the way back and we saw the situation with Pharaoh. God only hardens the heart that's already hard. He only hardens the hard heart. With Pharaoh 40 years prior, now it's, it's Sihon, same thing, and so it goes. God will never usurp your will, but you know what? He will confirm your will. And if my will is to receive the truth of Jesus, he's gonna confirm that. But if my will is to stand opposed to God, guess what? He will confirm that. It's one of the most amazing things. Talk about the, the grace and the love of God that, that he says, if you are set against me and that is your desire, if your heart is hard against me, I'll make sure it stays hard. Now even that, if you say, well, that just doesn't sound fair. Not, there's not a chance for repentance. God knows when there's not a chance for repentance. He knows the heart that is so hard it will never repent. And he hardens the heart. He supports that choice, you might say. And you might say, yeah, but Rick, what about, I mean, the women and the children of every city, verse 34, we left no survivor. Some would say, this is the part of the Old Testament I don't like. This is the God of the Old Testament wiping out people and just ravaging people and killing people. It's genocide, man. It's genocide. To which I reply, it's genocide if it's done by humans. But if it's done by the creator who made us in the first place, it's his right. Well, I don't like that. Well, I don't like that either, so let's go a little further with it. It is his right to do with as he please with his creation. Granted, he is God. And we've talked about that with these people and with the Canaanites, we have some idea, but we can only really guess at the depth of the depravity of this people that God would say, they gotta go. They are so sin sick. Remember, little Amorites grow up to be big Amorites. And so the entire people need to be taken out. But here's what you've got to remember. God is not limited like we are. God is eternal. God's perspective is not just this life. We look at this life and say, every loss of life, it freaks us out. Every loss of life is one too many. And by the way, it is with God. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel tells us. However, God is eternal. His perspective is completely different. God will judge all people eternally in a way, in a way that, that is fair and good and right. And by the way, the Bible quotes us saying, hallelujah, righteous and true are your judgments, O God. He will do exactly what is right. But there are times when a person or a people need to be removed from this land or this life. They need to be taken out because of the impact their culture is having, and the Lord will remove that culture of people. It's not genocide, it's righteousness. And it's his call. Later in Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse four, Moses says, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And in taking out all those Amorites, women and children alike, Guess what happens then? What we don't see behind the veil of eternity is God judging those people and bringing 
children into eternal life that would have been lost if they had grown up Amorites. Women who didn't have anything to do with what their sick, warring husbands were doing, perhaps. Or even men among the Amorites who, who believed in God such as they understood him, as they, as they knew him, perhaps the God, because remember, this whole area knew, was aware of, would have had, heard of, or had the potential to hear of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What are you saying, Rick? There might have been believers among the Amorites. Could have been. Well, then why God take them out? Save them. And that's the difference. We see people wiped out, and we say they're lost. God takes them out so that he can save. That's what happened in the flood. What about all the millions of little kids who drowned in the flood? Those little kids would have grown up to be as sin-sick as their families. And God saved them for eternity by taking them out in the immediate. And that's what's going on right here. That's all I'm going to say about that. The rock, his ways are perfect. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan and Og King of Bashan with all his people came out to meet us in battle at Adri. I like the name Og. It's just a good, solid, sounds like a pig. I don't know why it just does to me, Og. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him just as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered Og also, king of Bashan, with all his people into our hand, and we smote them until no survivor was left. Same story, second verse. We captured all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. Note this, 60 cities, all in the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. Og of Argob. If that doesn't sound like a Star Wars story, I'm not sure what does. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, Besides a great many unwalled towns, we, Moses is saying, remember, remember this, guys, we utterly destroyed them. We wiped them out. Do you remember doing that? He says, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, verse 6, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city, but all the animals and the spoil of the cities we took as our booty, our spoils of war. Verse eight, thus we took the land at that time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. That's all the way up along to the high north end of Israel. Mount Hermon is the furthest largest mountain in Israel in the far north. Sidonians call Hermon Sirion and the Amorites call it Sinir. And all the cities of the plateau and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salichah and Adri, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. Let me just tell you, you gotta write this one down. The name Og. The name Og literally means hearth cake. We in our translation would say pancake. The guy's name means pancake. Og the pancake. This is the great king Og, pancake. I think it's amazing. Verse 11. For only Pancake, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits, and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. That means his bed was 13 and a half feet by six feet. It's the first king-size bed right there. Huge. 
And there are those who think, because of the wording here, his bedstead is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon, which people think perhaps is a cemetery, that the word bedstead may in fact imply his coffin. That his coffin is 13 and a half feet long by six feet wide because you got to get the entire pancake in the coffin. But you know what? Talk about a colossally inconsequential dude. He is the last of those great big Rephaim and Israel flattened him like a flapjack. Read on, verse 12. So we took possession of this land at the time from Aror, which is by the valley of Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead, and its cities I gave to the Reubenites and to the Gadites. The rest of Gilead and Albishan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob, uh, concerning Albishan, which is called the land of Rephaim. Yair, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Meachathites and called it that is Bashan, after his own name, Havot Yair, as it is to this day. To Machir, I gave Gilead. Okay, this is still part of the tribe of Manasseh. I gave Gilead. And then to the Reubenites, verse 16, and to the Gadites, I gave from Gilead, even as far as the valley of Arnon, in the middle of the valley is a border as far as the river Yabok, the border of the sons of Ammon. The Arabah also, with, the, with Jordan as a border, from Kinneret, Kinneret, Lake Kinneret, the Galilee, from Kinneret, even as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And you can look all that up on a map. But he says, then I commanded you at that time, saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess it. All you valiant men shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel. That is, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Remember, they got their portion. They wanted to stay on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, but the deal was, you go fight with us first. You secure the promised land for the rest of Israel, and then you can go back, you and all your livestock. In fact, this is where Moses says, verse 19, but your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities, which I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your fellow countrymen as to you. And they also possess the land which the Lord your God will give them beyond the Jordan. Then you may return every man to his possession, possession which I have given you. And so Moses runs them through the agreement of the land given, Reuben, Gad, half Manasseh. Reminding them, and this is important, it's point number seven in our list. Reminding them of their commitment to fight with their Brothers, Something else we need to remember when we are facing conflict as believers is our commitment to each other. That is, if I know Jake's going into battle, I know Jake's going to be talking with a, a brother or, or a family member about Jesus, a friend that he's been praying for. And, you know, he says, Rick, I'm, I'm going to be meeting with this guy at the end of the week. I have a responsibility to help my brother fight. Well, I may not be there for the battle in person, but I can be there fighting in prayer. And we have a commitment to one another. Believers ought to first have each other's backs when we're facing tough times and challenges, whether it be with family or friends or whatever. Philippians 2 verse 1 says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind with Christians that you like. 
By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, regardless of whether or not you line up. Regardless of whether or not you happen to have affinities for the same things. Regardless of whether or not you're buds. Hey, we're in Christ together. And there's a call to be committed one to another. So facing conflicts with compassion and and contentment in the right company, the company of the Spirit of God, cultivating maturity. And when, when we're made aware of the colossally inconsequential opponents that we truly face, and remaining committed to each other in all of these things, God is preparing his people to conquer the land. Before they even arrived to begin their land campaigns, they had to fight Sihon and Og of the Amorites, and these weren't just a few. Remember, Moses said 60 cities when they were fighting Sihon, and then they went after Og and, and his people. They had, these were like training for going into the promised land, preparing for the battles that were to come. In fact, number eight in your list, they were catalysts of confidence for the coming fight. You realize that every conflict you have can build confidence for the next conflict that will come. You know, depending if you're, if you're keeping the right company, if you're there with the Spirit of God, you're approaching with compassion, you're, you're cultivating maturity. All that we've talked about, it all builds confidence. We say, well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a good evangelist, I'm just not gonna share Jesus. Because I'm afraid if I do, I'll get shut down. And you might. You, you might get shut down bringing the gospel to the first 37 people you share with and 38 get saved. And all the while, God is building in you. He's teaching you. He's showing you how to approach other people, how to bring the gospel of truth, how to bring grace. These are catalysts of confidence. Every single conflict is a catalyst for confidence for the next fight. Verse 21. So Moses says, I commanded Joshua at that time saying, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings So the Lord shall do to all the kingdoms into which you are about to cross. Do not fear them, for the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. So the battle against Sihon and Og, all those wars, those campaigns were all training. They were preparation for the people of Israel to see, number one, they could be victorious. But number two, most importantly, they were victorious because God was with them. Because God gave them the victory. Number one rule of spiritual warfare. Number one rule of spiritual warfare. Here it is. The Lord your God is the one fighting for you. God's the one. It's not my strength. It's not my power. It's not my righteousness. Not my faithfulness. Not how good I am at praying the right words or saying the right things. Not how many verses I've memorized. The number one rule of spiritual warfare is the Lord, your God, is the one fighting for you. Even Michael knew that. And that enigmatic verse in in Jude, I believe it's verse nine, that even Michael, when he got into a dispute with the devil about the body of Moses, am I right? Is that verse nine? Jake's gonna look it up. It's it's Jude's a little book. You can find it. But they're disputing about the body of Moses, which is a different story for a different time. And and it says, even Michael, the archangel Michael, the powerful Michael, even Michael, when dealing with Satan, said, 
the Lord rebuke you. He didn't say, I, Michael, by my powers, the archangel, rebuke you, Satan. No, he says, the Lord. Michael stands behind the name of Yahweh. <laughs> I love it. Because Michael understands in spiritual warfare, it is the Lord who goes to fight for you. That's why intercession is so vital, is so critical as we battle. Because we are taking, we're taking it to the one who fights. We're taking it to the one who has the strength, the one who has the name Jesus that causes the demons to shudder. We go to him. He fights the battle. And when we understand that and fight from that perspective, guess what? The battle is the Lord's. My confidence is Christ. It is not in me. Now, well, Rick, you've been in ministry a few years, though. Don't you have some confidence in that? No, I don't. I like what I've been hearing Les say lately. He said this the last two weeks. He said this in staff meeting. Jake, he looks across at Jake. I know the, the longer I know, the less I know. Something like that. The more I learn about God, the more I realize how little I know. And I asked him today, I said, Les, do you know less this week than you did last week? <laughs> Does Les know less? I mean, that's got to be so confusing sometimes. He's like, yep. It keeps shrinking. I keep realizing how little I know. So you know what? It doesn't matter how long you've been at this. And, and by the way, I say this to, to those of you who are new in faith. It doesn't matter if you're new in faith. The same God who I cry out to, the same Jesus who I name, you name. Same power. Sometimes I think us longer-term believers need to be stopped in our tracks and reminded it is Jesus to whom we appeal, not our great faith. Because when I was a new believer, I didn't know nothing. I had to say, Jesus, help me with this, because I don't have a clue where even to find the verse. He's the one who fights for us. Our confidence is Christ. And by the way, the smaller the skirmish is now, the greater our preparation for the larger battles that will come. And they will come. All of our battles are catalysts for confidence in the final victory. And by the way, let me just read a little bit of the final victory to you tonight. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. His, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on himself, which no one knows except himself, which I think is really cool. This is Jesus, by the way, clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Armies, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Looks an awful lot like a wedding gown, but they're armies. They're following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. By the way, it's not a tattoo. It's written on the robe, which is resting on his thigh, because he's on a horse. And there on that place on the robe, which would be the place of authority, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And the angel there is describing all of earth rebelling to the face of God, opposed to standing against shaking their fists against Jesus as he comes in his glory 
And so that's called the Supper of the Birds, which, by the way, is what Jesus referred to. That, that moment where the angel says, come to all the birds in the heavens, come and eat and come and feed. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 28, wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. And he's talking about that moment. And I saw the beast, Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him. Listen to who we just described. And they're all assembled to make war against Jesus and his might. The one who sat on the horse. They came to make war against him and against his army. The beast was seized. With him the false prophet who performed the signs in, the, in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And guess how many people I get to take out? The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And even there at the final battle as Jesus comes down, I, I often think of it this way. We are following him on white horses. We are returning with him. We, we've, been, we've been caught up. Bible talks about harpazo, rapture. We've been caught up to be with Jesus. We're not here during the time of tribulation, Revelation 6 through 18. We're with Jesus. But then as he comes back as the door opens in heaven the marriage feast of the lamb is over that's the first part of Revelation 19 and he comes back and we come riding back with him to war to war woohoo shouting our war cries and riding our horses and trying to stay on them and then by the time we land the war's over to war to <laughs> way to go Jesus I'm with him and that's that's it. That's the point. He does the fighting. Why do we think it would be any different right now? I got this one, Lord. I'll take care of this. I'll fight this battle on my own. I can, I can handle it. I've been a Christian for three months. I can do what he... You know, I'm, he fights the battle. By the way, how do I know that Revelation 19 is going to be done? Because every little conflict won assures me of the last conflict done. Every battle I fight that, that he fights for me, every tiny victory that I, I, I walk away from assures me he's got this. And so if I go into conflict, I remember by the last time he, he had me. I messed the whole thing up, but he still had me. And it builds that confidence in us to the very last conflict that Jesus will once again win and we're just there on the 50-yard line to cheer him on as his people. Now, a couple more things here, and we're, we're almost done. But as Moses charges Joshua, he tells Joshua, God's the one fighting for you. You're going to lead the people into the land. And you almost get a sense that Moses is charging himself up. He's telling Joshua what he's going to do, and he's thinking, I can do this. 120 years old, Right? I got, I, got, I got to go in. And he finds himself in crisis over his cancellation from the promised land. Verse 23. I also pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, Oh, Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Let me, I pray, 
Let me cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country, and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account. That is for your sake. He's not blaming the children of Israel. He's saying, for your sake, God was upset with me because I didn't treat you well. The Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough! Speak to me no more of this matter. God ever said to you, enough. Stop. You've bugged me enough about God ever told you? No. Now remember on Sunday we said the Lord's delays are not his denials. There are times where he delays long and calls us to wait and to trust him. And we know he's in it because we know he called us and we've seen him work in our struggle, in our delay. We've seen him do it, but, but, but we're not getting the resolution and we're waiting and waiting. So keep waiting because his delays are not his denials. But you know what? His denials are no. When God says no, that's it. It's no. And so number nine in your list, we see a chastisement. As the Lord says to Moses, enough. Speak to me no more of this matter. Stop asking, Moses. Stop pleading. Stop begging. Stop cajoling. Stop being like a five-year-old pulling at my hymn. Any of you have kids, you know that's what they do. They keep asking until they get what they want. Or they get a serious firm no from mom or dad, and they usually know the difference between no and no, I said no. No, no, okay, <laughs> and off they go. It's no. So here's Moses being told no by God. Paul implored the Lord three times, saying, can't you remove this thorn from my flesh? Second Corinthians 12, you know what Jesus said? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. In more simple terms, no. Will you take away this problem in my life that's dogging me every day, Lord? Nope. But Lord, I'm asking you to take it away. Nope. Lord, if you would take this away, my mission could be so much more effective. My grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. But because God is so gracious, and he is, he says, no, Moses, enough, Moses. And then he says, but I'll tell you what I'll do. Verse 27, go up to the top of Pisgah, and lift your eyes to the west and north and south and east and see it with your eyes for you shall not cross over this Jordan. And I've told you before, that was a supernatural vision that Moses was given. He was allowed, though he would not go into the land, to see all of the land. Well, how do you know that? Because I've stood on the high point of Pisgah and I've looked over the land and you can't see the Mediterranean Sea from there. And you can't see the far north of Israel from there. And you can't see the far south. You can see the eastern portion right there below you. And it's a beautiful vista. But you can't see what's described here. And God gave Moses a vision to see it all. I'll let you see it, Moses. But, verse 28, charge Joshua. And encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go across at the head of this people. And he will give them as an inheritance the land which you will see. So we remained at the valley opposite Beth Peor. So Moses gets this beautiful supernatural view, but in verse 28, number 10 in our list, he gives a charge. There's a charge given. 
The charge, Joshua, is to go into the conflict. You ever think about it that way? We have a charge to go into conflict with our families, with our friends, with the gospel. We have a charge to accept if conflict comes. We're not trying to stir it up. We're not trying to argue. We're not fighting just to fight. But we know conflict will follow when we bring the gospel. And it is our charge to go and fight. But our weapons, our weapons are, are not normal weapons. Our weapons of warfare are spiritual. We have the sword of the word. We have the spirit. We pray we have the armaments that Paul talked about. It's a very different type of fighting. But God tells Moses, you charge Joshua, lead the people in. Not Moses, Joshua. Joshua will lead. In fact, the phrase uh, Joshua will go across at the head, at the head of this people means toward the face or before the face of this people. Leet panay in the Hebrew. Joshua will lead them, not you, Moses. Why? Well, we know why Moses misrepresented God to the people, right? So he lost the promised land. But in the greater prophetic picture, it's also because Moses, while he misrepresented God, Moses represented the law. And the law will never get you into the promised land. The law cannot lead you in. I believe God is painting a picture right there. Joshua will lead you in. Yeshua will lead you in. Jesus will lead you into the promised land. For the law was given to Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Chapter 4. I'm going to punch into this just a few verses. Now Israel... Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you today, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Does that sound familiar? Don't add to this, Moses. Don't take away from it, Moses. Or Moses tells the people, don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And Revelation 22, 18 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Whoa. When Moses says, do not add or take away from this word, this is serious business. He's preaching the value of God's word. And think about this. Understand what he's talking about here is the word of God which now filled the scrolls of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and he's starting to write Deuteronomy as he's preaching. Don't add to this. Don't take away from it. What about Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel? First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. We could go through the whole list. What about all the books of the Hebrew Scriptures that come after Deuteronomy? And he's saying, don't add to them. What about the Psalms? What about the prophets? Are these all additional words added to what Moses told them? Nope. Check this out. Think about it with me. Every single further word or revelation finds its mention in Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. Everything else is expansion of what has been said, what has been done. Everything else, even Jesus. 
Behold, I come, he said, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. And we see Jesus and have seen Jesus throughout. We will see Jesus in Deuteronomy as well. Everything that God will further explain and reveal and give us understanding of, even the New Testament scriptures, because the New Testament are one fantastic Holy Spirit-given commentary of the Old Testament. It's all here. It's all in Torah. We find it in the first five. Christ in Torah. Nothing written after this contradicts or is contradicted, nothing here is contradicted by any further scriptures in the word of God. And so Moses says in verse three, your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who follow Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. So that's this generation got caught up in that immorality. And then he says, but you, listen, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I've taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you're in to possess it. This wasn't just about being in the wilderness. This is about going into the land. So, verse six, keep and do, for that is your wisdom and your understanding. In the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God, whenever we call on him? What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life but make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. You wanna be wise? You can close your Bibles, we'll end here. You wanna be wise? Keep the word. Keep the word. You want to have understanding in this world? Do the word. Keep and do, verse six. Keep and do. Keep the word and do the word. Keep is samartem, and it is translated observe, preserve, guard, watch over. As Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.20, keep Timothy, he says, guard or keep what has been trusted to you, avoiding worldly empty chatter, the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. 2 Timothy 1.13, retain or keep the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Samartim, preserve them, keep them, keep the word, he says, and he says, and do, keep and do. In fact, it's samartim va-asitim. Samartim va-asitim. Be a great t-shirt. Asitim means perform, execute, even, even manufacture. It, it's, the, it's the doing of the thing. Keep, guard, preserve, and perform, do, execute, Keep and do, that's, that's the key. It's always been the key, all the way over in James 1.22. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. If you say, I keep the word, I've got a nice clean Bible on my shelf. That's great, that's, that's not doing though. Keep and do, keep and do. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, it's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. 
But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And by the way, one of the best ways to keep and do, this is where it gets super applicable, practical in your life. You want to keep and do the word. One of the best ways is to teach it. Want to be a keeper and a doer of the word? Teach it. Well, that's great for you, Rick. I'm no Bible scholar. (laughs) Neither am I. Neither am I. I'm asked from time to time, hey, where'd you go to Bible college? I go, well, I went to ACU, Abilene Christian University. Oh, that's, that's where you got your Bible degree? No, that's where I got my psychology degree. That was a big waste of my time. I, I, it was great, you know, being there with Cheryl. But, but no, I didn't get a Bible degree. Well, well, where's your seminary training? I didn't go to cemetery. So how do you know the word of God? I, I teach it. I've been teaching it for 30 years plus. That's how I know it. I wasn't taught it, really. I just opened it up, and I, and I studied, and I, and I teach it. Well, great, Rick, okay, so, so you teach it. But I'm no pastor teacher. How about kids' classes? Can you teach that? I don't like kids. Okay, well, let's think about something else. <laughs> a home group. Can you lead a home group? Oh, I don't know. Opening the Bible and leading a group. Can you read a passage and ask, what do you think? You'd be amazed at how much knowledge you begin to gain when you start to not just keep, but you do the word. Well, I don't know about leading a home group. Can you sit down with a friend and have a one-on-one Bible study through one of the Gospels? You will be amazed at what you know by the time you're done. You'll be amazed at how the word gets in and starts to take hold and starts to move you. Can you just, verse 9 tells us, make them known to your sons and your grandsons? Can you tell your kids? It's that simple. Keep and do this word through calm, through conflict, through blessings, and through battles. Keep and do. Father, we pray that you'll bless us now just with these things that you've given us and lay before us through the teaching of Moses as he expounds the word. And Lord, his great confidence, it's awesome to me. It's so encouraging to me. To know 3,500 years ago, 120-year-old Moses was rattling off your word and calling people to keep and do your word. Father, I, I, because that's what Moses did. He kept your word. And he performed it. He executed it. He taught it. He shared it. And we've been given such a word. As my sister said earlier today, God's word is just so amazing. Lord, your word is. There's nothing like it. And I pray for those of us gathered here tonight that the things implanted on our hearts and in our minds by your spirit, the word you have given us would take root and grow and sprout and bear fruit. Help us, Lord, not to walk away and lose these things, but to keep them and do them in Jesus' name. Amen.